Have you ever had the experience, have you ever had the experience of having the same encounter as somebody else, walking through the same thing, seeing the same thing, but yet you and the other person walk away having had very different experiences? Have you ever had the, ex- the, the, the thing happen to you where maybe you and the person sitting right next to you walk together and you, you walk through the exact same thing? But you come away from it having had very different experiences. Maybe you rode a roller coaster at Six Flags, and while the person next to you screamed out of enjoyment and excitement, you screamed out of the fact that you thought this was the last thing you were ever going to do in life. Yes. <laughs> Same encounter, different experience. Maybe you found out that you and a friend know the same person, and you say to your friend, man, he is so funny. And your friend looks at you and says, really? Because I uh, always wanted him to stop talking. And it's the same encounter, just different experiences. Sometimes we have the same encounter and the same experience. Like maybe in just a few minutes, you'll walk out of this room and you'll turn to the person next to you and say, boy, that was a long, boring sermon. And they'll say, I know. It's the same encounter. That's the same encounter, same experience. But often we have the same encounter in a different experience. When Lori and I first started uh, dating, one of the movies that we went and saw, uh, it was one of our, our first dates, we went and saw The Italian Job. And if you ever saw that movie, you know there's a lot of action and excitement in The Italian Job. And I remember watching the movie and uh, they, they race around in those Mini Coopers in that movie and they're driving through buildings and they're up and down the stairs and people are shooting at each other and this big heist going on and it's loud and it's exciting and my adrenaline is through the roof and I turned and I looked at, my, at, at Lori and, and she was dead asleep. <laughs> and I was hoping it was more of a comment on the movie than the date itself. <laughs> But same encounter, different experience. You know, a lot of times when it comes to things like, like art, movies, books, uh, things like that, a comedy show, we can have the same encounter with other people, walk away with a different experience. It happens in the art world a lot. In fact, I came across a list uh, this week of uh, pieces of art that were sold in 2013. And as I looked at the pieces of art, I thought to myself, man, I'm having the same encounter with this art as someone else did, and yet I'm clearly having a different experience. Let me tell you what I mean, and maybe you'll feel similar to me, or maybe you'll think the opposite. This first uh, piece of art here, this is an art uh, by an artist named uh, de Kooning. I think it's Mark de Kooning. I don't know. I've memorized some of these names just for this morning. I hope I'm correct. But this piece of art sold last year. It's important to note that the that the the woman in the, is, is not a piece of this. She's not a part of the art. It's just what's behind her. So de Kooning is, you know, he's, he's good at the splotches and the squiggly lines. And it's sold at auction. Sold at auction for $32.1 million. I'm having the same encounter with it as someone else. But just a very different experience. This one, this one, you know this name, right? This is Pablo Picasso. This is a piece that he uh, painted in 1932. It's clearly of a woman uh, who's half toucan, um, who has the same arms as Homer Simpson. And 
This one sold for $46 million. I got two more. Mark Jean Basquiat. This is Dust Heads. Dust Heads. Um, my daughter did something just like this. <laughs> But Dust Heads sold for $48.4 million last year. And this final one, this is um, Cos Mark Costas, Costcos, Costcos, Mark Costcos. This is, uh, again, the person looking at the portrait is not in this picture. It's just the orange and the white, just the orange with the white stripe. Um, this is unentitled. Even the artist didn't know what it was. <laughs> And uh, this one sold for $44 million in 2013. I mean, same, same encounter. Same encounter. You see these pieces of art, same encounter with them, but very different experience for me. And it happens all the time. Well, we can encounter the same thing as other people. Come across the same thing, hear the same thing, and have a very different experience. You know, when Jesus walked the face of this earth... He encountered a lot of different people. He encountered different individuals, individuals. He encountered people from different social classes. He encountered people from different ethnic backgrounds. He encountered people from different religious backgrounds. And he encountered all of these people. And it's amazing when you look at the stories, how different the experiences were of the people when they walked away. That even though they had encountered the same person, even though he had done the same work, even though he had said the same thing, people walked away from that encounter with very different experiences. And this morning, we're going to take a look at just a couple of those encounters that people had with Jesus and how they walked away from those experiences. And I want us to think about the question, why is it, why is it that some people encounter Jesus and walk away having experienced the extraordinary Savior of the world? Why is it that some people came in contact with Jesus and experienced radical transformation and experienced the fact that Jesus was sent by God and he was the extraordinary Savior? And why is it that other people encountered Jesus Christ and walked away having experienced him as no more than an ordinary carpenter. Some people experienced the extraordinary Savior. Other people thought he walked away thinking just an ordinary carpenter. And I want us to think about the question, why is it that today so many people encounter Jesus Christ and yet walk away without ever having experienced the extraordinary Savior? This morning, we have a number of verses. If you walked in this morning and you said to yourself, man, I hope the preacher reads a ton of verses, today you're in luck. <laughs> we, got, we have a, a, a good chunk of scripture that we're going to walk through. So we'll walk through the stories and I'll ask you just to, just to stick with me because there is something that God has to say to us together this morning. So we are in Mark chapter 5. We've been walking through the book of Mark. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we'll continue that today. We're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there and stay with us. Uh, otherwise, the verses will be up on the screens. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, Mark writes, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, 
And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, that's Jesus, and Jesus went with him. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked about Jesus going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And they went from Galilee to the Decapolis. So they moved from a Jewish territory to what was a very Gentile Greek and Roman territory. We talked about what Jesus encountered there and what he did. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to the message, it's, it's on the website. I encourage you to listen to it. We talked about who Jesus really came for last week. And so this week, Jesus leaves the Decapolis, and he heads back to Galilee. He heads back home, heads back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and probably to the city of Capernaum, if you can see it up there on the map. And he gets off the boat in Capernaum, and Mark says that a great crowd gathered to greet him. But he focuses on one man out of that great crowd. One man who came to Jesus out of pure desperation. One man who needed God to do something amazing in his life, who had no other options. And Mark says that that man was a ruler of the synagogue. And so as a ruler of synagogue, this man, Jairus, he would have been a man who had important standing in the community. He was basically in charge of the local church. He helped run the local synagogue. And he would have been a man of prominence in the community. He probably would have been a man of wealth in the community. So he was a man that stood out. He's not the kind of man that you would expect to find running through a crowd and falling at the feet of a Galilean carpenter turned rabbi. Not the kind of man that you would expect uh, to be so undignified as to come running through the crowd and throw himself at the feet of Jesus the second he gets off the boat. But he's clearly been waiting for Jesus to return. He is a man who is desperate to do anything that he possibly could for his child. I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to watch your child suffer to that point where they're on the brink of death. But I can imagine that there's nothing that would stop me from doing anything to try and solve that problem. And that's where Jairus is. He will do anything. So he doesn't care about being undignified. He doesn't care that, that, that people around him in the synagogue are skeptical about this Jesus guy. He runs through the crowd and falls at the feet of Jesus in desperation and asks Jesus to come with him. And Jesus says to him, yes, I will come with you. And so Jairus and the disciples and Jesus, they turn around and they head off to go see Jairus' little girl who needs healing. And Mark writes in verse 24, And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in him that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus has an important uh, appointment to get to. There is a girl who is on her deathbed. A 12-year-old girl, we'll find out in just a few moments, who's on her deathbed. Jesus has somewhere important to be and somewhere important to go. And you can picture, can't you? Jesus says, I will go with you, and there's no delay. He and Jairus head off. The disciples are there. They're pushing through the crowd. They're making way through the crowd. They're getting people out of the way because they need to get there as soon as possible. Jairus' daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, is about to die. But there's another desperate person in the crowd. And this woman who fights through the crowd and comes up to Jesus. You know, we read about her disease and what she's suffering. But it's not just about the disease that she has. If you go back into the old law in the Old Testament, the Jewish law, you look in Leviticus chapter 15, you'll find that because of this woman's problem, that according to Jewish law, she was perpetually unclean. Always unclean for 12 years. And any person she touched was unclean. So it wasn't just about the disease. It wasn't just about the physical problem. For 12 years, this woman had lived in isolation. This woman had lived without relationship. Her family could not be touched. She couldn't be around anybody because no matter where she went and no matter what she did, she was always unclean. And she couldn't take the risk of touching someone and making them unclean. And so for 12 years, she lived in isolation, separated from the rest of society. And so she pushes through the crowd because she's desperate. Desperate for something to happen, not just that the, the problem would be healed, but, but that she would be restored to community and restored to relationship. She had been suffering not only from this disease, but also from the cures, the Bible tells us. She spent every dime that she had with every doctor that she could go to. And it says the cures were not easy, that they caused her great pain. And she comes and she, she sees Jesus. And her, her theology, it, it might be a little bit off. There was this thought in ancient world and in the culture that when someone of great importance wore clothes, that their wisdom and their, and their power transformed to the clothing that they wore. Jesus was the one that had the power, not his clothes. But she had this idea that if she could just touch him, just touch him, she would be made well. And so she fights through the crowd and knew who knows how many people were made unclean as she pushed her way through the crowd. And she touches Jesus, and the, and the Bible says that she was immediately healed. And Jesus does something very odd in that moment, if you think about the situation. There's a dying 12-year-old girl he needs to get to. She's going to die. And the disciples are pushing through the crowd, and, 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 and there's all sorts of commotion as they try to get to this house, and Jesus stops. And you can picture what the disciples must be thinking. And I mean, forget the disciples. What about Jairus? What is going on here? Why would you stop? Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And Jesus stops. He says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him and go, 
everybody touched you? I mean, I, I don't know. There's, there's a million people here, and, and they're all bumping into each other. Uh, everyone touched you. What, what do you mean, who touched you? And he says, no, who touched me? And he, he just looked at the crowd. You know when you're in class and one person does something wrong, and the teacher looks around and says, all right, who did it? And just stands there. And you're just waiting for the person to come forward, and you're hoping that you don't get in trouble. And if you're the person that did it, you're like, oh, no, please don't make me say it. Jesus looks at the crowd. Who did it? Who touched me? And waited. And the Bible says this woman came out of the crowd with fear and trembling and threw herself at the feet of Jesus. She had no other options. She had done everything else. She was so desperate. And the Bible says something so amazing here. It says that when she threw herself at the feet of Jesus, she told Jesus the whole truth. Everything. I don't know how long that took to tell him the whole truth. There's 12 years of stuff to tell. Much less, I pushed the crowd, I made all these people unclean, I know I shouldn't even be here, and then I touched you, and now you're unclean. Just spills her guts in front of Jesus and in front of the crowd. And Jesus, the Bible says, pick her up and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And that word, well, many folks would translate that word whole. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let me tell you that what Jesus had to do with this woman, what Jesus wanted to accomplish with this woman, went far beyond just, just helping her with her physical problem. What Jesus wanted to have, have accomplished in this woman's life, what needed to happen in her life, went far beyond just her being healed. There was a need for her to be made whole. Jesus wanted to do something far beyond the healing. In front of the crowd and in front of the disciples and in front of Jairus, he wanted to do something far beyond just, just making her well physically. When she left that encounter, he wanted her to be spiritually and relationally and physically whole. And so he stopped. He said, I know she's already healed, but there's a greater work that's supposed to happen here. It's not just about the miracle of the healing. She needs to be made whole. And I'm sure Jairus is thinking, that's great, Jesus. It's been 12 years. What does it matter if it's tomorrow? My daughter has no tomorrow. My daughter has no tomorrow. She can be made whole tomorrow. My daughter has no tomorrow. And while Jesus is talking to the woman, she's spilling her guts about the whole truth, and Jesus is talking to her about being made whole, the Bible says that while Jesus was still speaking, we're in verse 35, there came from the ruler's house, that's Jairus' house, some who said, your daughter is dead. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, I don't know if you can, what that must feel like in that moment. I mean, this was, this was the last ditch effort. And he stopped to take care of this woman and she's gone. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. You know, if Jesus worked in an ER and he decided to help this woman before he helped the dying little girl, he would have been sued for malpractice, right? It would be miracle malpractice because he went and helped the wrong person first. But what Jesus was knew that no one else knew, including his disciples and including Jairus, is that it wasn't just about the healings, that there was a greater work that needed to take place in the lives of people And there was a greater reason why he came. And so in the moment where the people come and he's talking to the woman and the people come and he hears them say, your daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher. He stops and he says, Jairus, just stay with me. Don't be afraid, just believe. And they go to the house and the Bible says there are mourners there. And the culture at the time, they would hire professional mourners when someone died. And even a very poor person would, for a family member, hire professional mourners who for days would come with with tambourines and drums and would wail loudly and would weep loudly day after day. And so for Jairus, a man who is of great social prominence in his community, he would have hired many mourners to come. And so Jesus walks in and there's weeping and wailing loudly. And Jesus says, she's not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him. And the laughing only makes sense because they're not connected to this girl. This isn't her aunts and uncles. These are professional mourners who are brought in. And they think to themselves, this guy, we know death. This is what we do. This is our business. We go, we're professionals. And he walks in and says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And they laugh at him. What's this guy talking about? And he sends them outside, the Bible says, and he sits next to the girl and he uses words that a parent would use to wake their child up from sleeping. And when you're a child, your, your parent would walk in and, and kind of rub your shoulder and say, honey, it's time to get up. Sometimes they'd stand at the bottom of the stairs and scream, get out of bed. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they would come in and say, honey, it's, it's time to get up. And Jesus sits next to the girl and says, honey, It's time to get up. She gets up, and the people are amazed. Because, you see, it wasn't about the healing. Jesus wanted the people to know that they were not encountering some miracle worker who just made people people well and, 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 and made sick girls not die. They didn't encounter, he's not a miracle magician who walks around on the streets and and does tricks for the amazement of the people. He's the extraordinary savior of the world who has come to make people whole and has come to bring the dead to life. 
He is far beyond any sort of magical, mystical teacher who would walk around and just say nice things and do nice things for people. He is the extraordinary savior of the world who has come. And for the woman and for Jarius and for his entire family, they encountered Jesus and they had this experience where they not only, only were healed and not only made whole, but, but their lives were changed and their souls were dramatically impacted. Amen. You know, our mission here at Mount Hope is loving Christ transforming lives. And the reason the two are together is because they're, they're inextricably linked. If we love Christ and experience his life, his love, then our lives will be changed and transformed at a very deep level. It's not just about the healing. It's not just about changing behavior. It's about being made whole, being made alive through Christ. But not everyone had that experience. Not everyone had the experience of encountering Jesus and walking away saying, what an extraordinary savior. Other people encountered Jesus Christ and walked away very differently. Jesus went away from there in chapter 6, verse 1, and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter and son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. Jesus leaves Jairus' house, and the people are amazed by what he's done. And now it's Jesus' turn to be amazed. They're amazed that he's raised someone from the dead. Jesus is amazed at how the people in his hometown refuse to accept him and believe him. Even though they hear him teach and they say, man, where did he get that wisdom? And, 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 and how did he learn to do all these things? At the end of the day, they reject him. You know, familiarity with something can take what is extraordinary and make it seem very ordinary, can't it? When we're familiar with something, when we get used to something, things that are very extraordinary can, can become very ordinary to us. You think about when you were a freshman in high school and you walked into that building for the very first time, and some of you are about to do that in just a couple of weeks. But think about it, you know, you're 13 or 14 years old and you, you walk into that place and it's so much bigger and you were just on the top of school and now you're on the bottom and everyone's taller and older and smarter and the classrooms seem bigger and, 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 the, and the options are, are bigger, the hallways are longer and it's a total overwhelming experience. The lockers are bigger and the, the gym is bigger and, and, and everything is more confusing. And it's an overwhelming experience that first time that you walk in and have to get settled there. But by the time you walk in there for your last year, you know everything about it. It's no big deal. You're not thrown off by the fact that people uh, that come to this school have to shave every day. <laughs> You've been here a while. Oh, it works. 
Because when we're familiar with something, things that seem so big and extraordinary become very ordinary. And you know, the people that knew Jesus growing up, they felt so familiar with him that they couldn't appreciate how extraordinary he was. And and he is. Isn't this the guy that was in class with us? Didn't, is this the guy from Hebrew school? The guy whose brothers and sisters still live here. He's, he's, uh, he's not that special. We know this guy. He's the son of Mary, right? Which, by the way, was an insult. If they really respected him, they would have said, he's the son of Joseph, right? But to refer to him as the son of his mother was an insult. So he's the son of Mary, and his sisters are here. We know this guy. And they reject him. They were so familiar and thought they could wrap their minds around who Jesus was and what he came to do. That what was very extraordinary, they wrote off as ordinary. And the same thing happens today, doesn't it? That we come and encounter Jesus Christ. And some experience the extraordinary Savior are made whole And what is dead is brought back to life. And others, they encounter Jesus Christ. And all they experience is the ordinary carpenter. We think we know who he is. In fact, you can sit in church for a long time. And at one time in our lives, we experience the extraordinary Savior. But for years and years and years, all we've experienced is the ordinary carpenter. Because we think we have God figured out. We think we know him well enough to understand who he is and how he works and how this whole thing goes. And so we show up once a week and it happens pretty much every week the way we expect it to and then we go home and that's, this is how this God thing happens. And all we ever experience in our lives is the ordinary carpenter. So what's the difference? What's the difference between those who experience the extraordinary Savior and those who experience the ordinary carpenter? I believe that there is something inside of each and every one of us that knows we need a Savior. There is something inside of each and every one of us that knows that we are broken and that we are not perfect. And no matter how hard we try to hide it and play it off like we don't believe this, there is something inside of each and every one of us that knows we need a Savior. We look for it in every single place. I promise you every person that you know has a practical Savior in their life that they are trusting and they are looking for to somehow try and make them whole and fix them. Some people turn to money, others to jobs, others to education, others to friendships, others to family. Some of us turn inside of ourselves and believe that if we could just figure out our own hearts in our lives, if we could, if we just figure that out, that, that then we would be saved. The biggest one that's happening in our culture today is the God of happiness. We believe that happiness is our savior. And if we just allow everyone to do what makes them happy and, and we let the song keep playing over and over and over and over again through the mall, that because I'm happy and, and it's just on and on and on, that is the anthem of our culture today. We believe that, that if we were happy, we would be saved. Everyone knows, everyone feels the need for a savior. And I'm telling you this morning, That the only one who can make us whole, the only one who can take what is dead inside of us and bring it back to life, the only one who can heal, the only one that we need is Jesus Christ. So what separates those 
who encounter Jesus and experience the extraordinary Savior and, and those who encounter Jesus and just get the ordinary carpenter. In the mid-90s, a man by the name of Tony Dungy was hired as the head football coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, maybe you follow football, maybe you don't. But I'll just tell you, Tampa Bay for a long time was terrible. They were the worst team in the league. They had the worst uniforms, and they were the worst team. (laughs) And so Tony Dungy gets hired, and he came in, and he did something very different than any other coach had done. All this story I'm about to tell you is in a great book called The Power of Habit, uh, which came out, I believe, a couple years ago. It's fantastic. Tony Dungy comes in uh, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he decides that what they're going to do is they're not going to lift more weights and they're not going to run more laps. That they are going to day after day and week after week in practice work on developing new habits on the football field. So that when they see certain things and, and certain things begin to happen, that they would react differently. And where they used to just rely on their own athleticism and their, and their own uh, ability and skill, that they would learn new habits that they would trust in those moments. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers changed. They developed these new habits. And they went to the playoffs for the first time in a long time. But something happened when they got in the playoffs and the pressure was on. When the pressure was on and they were in the crisis moments, they lost. And they went to the playoffs the next year and they lost. And the next year and they lost. And the next year they lost. And finally, in 2001, Tony Dungy was fired because they kept going to the playoffs and losing. And years later, when Dungy was asked, why is it that that you couldn't get over the hump? He simply said, because in the crisis moments, when the pressure was on, the players stopped believing. That they would believe in the system through, through the easy times, through the regular season, as long as the games were going good. But when it was crisis time and the pressure was on, they would go back to their old way of thinking and they would lose. Tony Dungy was hired by the 2002, in 2002 by the Indianapolis Colts. And he worked on his habits again, same method. Went to the, they all learned all the new habits. And they went to the playoffs. And they lost. And they went to the playoffs again. And they lost. And in 2005, they made it all the way to the AFC Championship game against your New England Patriots. And they lost. And Dungy said it was the same thing. They would believe, they would believe, they would believe. And then in the crisis moments, when the pressure was on and things were the worst, they would go back to their old way of thinking and we would lose. Maybe you remember this story. It was national news, even outside of sports. Uh, In 2005, Tony Dungy's son committed suicide. And he said he remembers getting that call and his players watched him walk through that. Tony Dungy's a Christian. He's a man of faith. And his players just watched him handle this thing with such integrity. And the players in interviews years later said, we made a decision that we were just going to buy in. Tony's a, Tony's a great guy. He had suffered such a tragedy. This year we're believing no matter what. We're just going to do it. We're going to go all out and just do it. In 2006, the Indianapolis Colts made it through the regular season. And then they made the AFC Championship game. I don't really want to talk about this. They played the New England Patriots. (laughs) The halftime score was New England 21, 
Indianapolis 3. Remember? And Tony Dungy walked into that locker room. No team had ever overcome that sort of deficit in a championship game before, ever. They have now. But no, at that point, no one had. Tony Dungy walked in. He said, he said to his team, listen, this is our time if you'll believe. This is our time if you'll believe. And they went out and they did the habits. And then, you know, the, they went on. And... Uh, <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> no, they won the Super Bowl that year. Same, same encounter, same encounter with the same coach. Totally different experience. What was the difference? They believed. They believed. They believed. And that's the only question before us. You want to experience the extraordinary Savior and what he offers? and the healing, and being made whole, and the transformation, and the life that he offers, and all that he brings, and all that he will give. The only difference between the people that experienced the healing power and the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ and those who didn't is the willingness to believe. Especially in those crisis moments, when the pressure is on and life is the toughest and things are the hardest and we've exhausted every other resource, we would go and fall at the feet of Jesus and believe. I believe that you're the answer. I believe that you're all I need. Nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is impossible for you. You hold the world in your hands. I believe that you are all I need. I believe that nothing is impossible for you. I believe that you are the extraordinary Savior who will do what you said you would do. Jesus wants to do far more in our lives than just bring us physical healing or just help us stop bad behaviors. He wants to make us whole, to renew us, and to restore us, and to where your soul is broken and hurt and lost, he wants to make it complete. And we have to answer the question, will we believe? It is up to us to believe. We're going to come this morning to this table, and I'll ask those that are helping me to go ahead and join me. Come this morning to this table. And this table represents the most extraordinary thing that our Savior has done for us. That where we were sinners and we were lost and we were broken. Christ went and did what, took our place and did what we should have had to do. We should have to pay for our own sins. We should have to pay the price for the wrong that we've done. But Jesus came and did it on our behalf. He did it so that we would have life eternal. So that we would be made complete. So that we would be made whole. And when we come to this table, one of the things that we are saying 
is that we believe that Jesus is no ordinary carpenter from Galilee. We believe that he is the extraordinary savior sent by God to save this world. In just a moment, we're going to pass out these elements of communion. And I'm going to invite you to take a piece of bread. I'm going to invite you to take a cup of juice and just hold them for a moment. And while you hold them, I want you to ask yourself the question, do I really believe that Jesus Christ is the extraordinary Savior? And where am I treating him in my life like he's nothing more than the ordinary carpenter? Where am I treating him like he's just a part of the solution and not the solution? Where have I become so familiar with Jesus that I have made the mistake of thinking I have him all figured out? Ask yourself, do I really believe? And ask the Lord to give you the faith and the courage to take him at his word and believe him for who he really is. Oh God, we confess this morning that we need you. And Lord, as we hold this bread and this cup, God, in our hearts we say to you, we do believe. We believe that you are the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Lord, we believe that you are the one who can transform us, who can change us, who can make us whole. God, we believe this morning that there is no other answer in this world than you. That you are the ultimate answer. That you are the one who is the solution. And Father, I believe that there are people in here this morning who are saying that for the first time ever. God, I pray that as they do, that they would sense your healing touch, that they would begin to experience your Holy Spirit, do what he did inside that woman and inside of Jairus' daughter, that you bring new life and make them whole. And God, there are many today who are saying they believe for the first time in a long time. I pray that this morning they would find the extraordinary Savior who always forgives, who always embraces, who always heals. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. We believe in Jesus' name.